Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Hepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Boston, Massachusetts to discuss the respiratory physiology of mechanically ventilated patients with COVID-19. Great. Thank you, Dominique, and thank you for inviting us to talk with you today. My name is Jahan Aladina. I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, where I see patients in pulmonary clinic as well as attend in our intensive care units taking care of our critically ill patients. I also perform human translational research with a focus on the innate immune response in pulmonary disease. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, uh, Jahan. Uh, Corey? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for thanks for having us. It's great to have this uh, opportunity to make. So I'm Corey Harden. I'm uh, also a pulmonary and critical care uh, physician in uh, Department of Pulmonary and Critical Care at Massachusetts General Hospital, um, and I am uh, clinically clinically I'm primarily involved in taking care of patients in the in the ICU, um, so almost exclusively uh, critical care. And then uh, research-wise, I uh, run a lab that looks at the biophysics of ARDS and biophysics of of the pulmonary pulmonary endothelium. I'm also the associate director of our cardiopulmonary exercise lab. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have both of you on the podcast. Uh, today we'll be discussing your article uh, that was published online on April the 29th, 2020. Uh, the paper is entitled uh, The Respiratory Pathophysiology of Mechanically Ventilated Patients with COVID-19, a cohort study. It was published in the Blue Journal. And uh, maybe we'll turn to uh, Corey, and you could tell us uh, what the motivation or rationale to perform the study was. Yeah, so what we really wanted to do was just to drill down and understand uh, both the pathophysiology of respiratory failure in association with COVID-19 um, and the, uh, the pulmonary physiology that our patients in the ICU were presenting with. So uh, obviously the, the whole world is dealing with the, with the outbreak of COVID-19. Um, we've been particularly heavily uh, affected in Boston. We're currently uh, the third most cases of states in uh, in the United States. We peaked at, uh, at just just shy of 200 uh, ICU patients in uh, uh, for a daily census in in Boston. And very early on, um, we uh, realized that uh, we were going to get a large number of cases, and we wanted. Uh, initially, just to sort of understand, to improve our clinical care, to understand what the physiologic characteristics of these patients were, what kind of pathology we were going to be seeing, and just get a really uh, careful phenotyping of the type of patients that uh, that we were going to see. Yeah, so that's really interesting because uh, I think a month earlier, there were some reports from Italy um, that uh, the COVID-19 may have a different um, uh, profile in terms of a mechanical ventilation and ARDS. Maybe you could just uh, expand on that before we turn to Jahan about her study objectives. Yeah, so I mean, there, there certainly were um, some sort of preliminary and poorly sourced uh, reports that suggested that there was something entirely novel about the pathophysiology that was uh, associated with uh, COVID-19. Um, that was not consistent with our uh, our early experience, and and um, to be honest, I was not consistent with our sort of understanding of the usual heterogeneity associated with uh, with, with ARDS. And so uh, we wanted to, to check our assumptions. And, and, and with the, the data that we had on the large number of patients we were seeing, see if, uh, if those early reports of fundamentally different respiratory uh, uh, pathophysiology was 
uh, were true and whether um, whether that's what we were seeing in, in our patients. Yeah, I think overall what we wanted to do is just have data. You know, I mean, early on in the COVID-19 outbreak, there were a lot of poorly sourced reports flying around. People were getting emails and anecdotal reports from colleagues around the world as different uh, different places around the world became the centers of uh, the center of the outbreak. And what we wanted to do was just have really solid data so that when we were uh, making statements and making clinical decisions about our patients, they weren't based on anecdotal reports, which um, have a history of very poor reliability in critical care in particular, but were based on solid, solid data. Yeah, I think that's a good way to, to start, and thanks for setting the stage. So I'm going to turn our attention to uh, Dr. Aladina. So maybe you could tell us what your study objectives were. Yeah, so exactly as Corey said, our primary objective was to characterize the respiratory failure associated with COVID-19 in a detailed patient-level manner, looking at standard physiologic measures that as critical care physicians we assess routinely at the bedside, with the hope that we could then inform management and treatment decisions for these patients going forward. Our secondary objective was to study how these patients with COVID-19 respiratory failure respond to established therapies for respiratory failure, and in particular, ARDS. And we focused on the response to prone ventilation, which was used in about half of our cohort. We also compare this response in our patients with COVID-19 to prior large cohorts of patients with ARDS from a variety of other etiologies. Finally, while we were in the process of collecting and preparing our data, there was a lot of discussion occurring in scientific journals and the lay press about the extraordinarily high mortality rate in patients with COVID-19, particularly those managed with mechanical ventilation, This has since been somewhat tempered, although the concerns regarding mechanical ventilation risk still remain and have been expressed even by patients of mine. We saw that we had a minimum of 30 days of follow-up in our cohort of 66 patients, and while still an early time point, we decided to look at outcomes in our initial group of patients that were managed with mechanical ventilation and establish ARDS therapies in our ICUs. Great. Was anything unique in terms of your study methods um, that addressed uh, prior limitations of previous reports or studies? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the main things I would emphasize about our study is that we were looking at patient-level data. So we wanted to show not just sort of median or global values for patients, but actually show at an individual level where each patient was falling. In particular, there's a lot of discussion, as I think you've alluded to, about different phenotypes and perhaps a high and low sort of compliance phenotype. So we really wanted to look at the individual patient-level data and see if that was borne out in our patients. Also, I think compared to some other studies, we initially weren't too um, focused on reporting outcomes. We really wanted to look at respiratory pathophysiology. But as we realized that there was a lot of information circulating around and we actually had a minimum of 30 days follow-up, we felt like it was important to publish that data as well. So I would say those are the two major differences compared to other studies. Um, But at the same time, this is just a small observational retrospective cohort, so it comes with all the limitations that go along with that. Good. So why did you all choose 30 days? Um, There was a recent paper published in JAMA that looked at what appears to be five to seven days outcomes, and they reported an 80% mortality, and they ended up censoring a whole bunch of patients that were still on the ventilator. What made you go for 30 days rather than what JAMA had reported um, of uh, what it was five to seven days? I mean, I think exactly as you said, um, we wanted, we noticed that we had a longer time point and 30 days is a pretty well sort of accepted time point in a lot of clinical trial data at least. 
The other point that we noted was that at 30 days, which was sort of the point where we had finished sort of collecting and processing our data, was that no patient remained um, endotracheally intubated at that time. All patients were either extubated, had unfortunately passed away, or had a tracheostomy placed. So we felt like this was a good time point at which to report our outcomes as no one remained endotracheally intubated. Great. Uh, Corey, were there any other limitations in previous reports or studies that you felt that your study would address before you went ahead and uh, performed the study and uh, wrote up the data? Yeah, I would just echo what, what Jahan said. I think a really important thing is is allowing enough time to pass uh, before we censored our data that we had that we had solid outcomes. I think one of the, the things that's happened uh, during this outbreak is there's been a real pressure to get uh, observational data uh, into the journals, and that has pluses and minuses. And so uh, you referenced the JAMA report. I think that was widely misinterpreted because uh, the, short, the follow-up period was so short, and the majority of patients in that study had not uh, reached uh, a definitive outcome. So as Jahan says, uh, we were really focused on, on making sure that we had accurate information about uh, realistic clinical endpoints. Great. So, Jahan, why don't you go ahead and tell us what your key findings were and how you interpreted these findings? Sure. So, as uh, I stated before, our primary objective was to look at baseline respiratory physiology in our patients. So, these were all adult inpatients with COVID-19 respiratory failure that were managed with mechanical ventilation, both at Mass General Hospital and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Uh, from the period of March 11th to March 30th of this year. And all patients were managed at the discretion of the treating physician by established hospital guidelines. This was not an interventional study. We reviewed the electronic medical record and collected standard physiologic parameters during the first five days of intubation, so things that I think most critical care physicians would be interested in and look at, at a routine ba- on a routine basis. So this includes measures of gas exchange, such as PDF ratio, estimated dead space, PEEP, plateau pressure, and then calculated driving pressure and measured static compliance of the respiratory system. And also looked at the response of these physiologic parameters to prone ventilation. So we measured these parameters immediately prior to prone positioning, then immediately after prone positioning, after returning to the supine position, and at 72 hours. We collected baseline demographic data, including some variables that people have been particularly interested in, such as number of patients receiving medications, such as ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, and statins at home, and initial laboratory values, and then outcomes, as we talked about before. And I would say um, the first most important finding is that 56 patients out of our cohort of 66 total patients, or 85%, met Berlin criteria for ARDS. And well, I don't think this is surprising to anyone. I think it was really important to just show this with data um, in a patient-level way. And additionally, looking more specifically at the respiratory parameters and the physiology, upon intubation, we found that patients had a baseline P-to-F ratio of 182, a plateau pressure of 21 on a PEEP of 10, which gave us a driving pressure of 11, and a measured static compliance of the respiratory system of 35. So all of these values are highly consistent with prior large studies of patients with ARDS. For instance, initial PETA-F and lung safe, which is the largest epidemiologic study of ARDS that included over 400 ICUs in 50 countries across the world was 161. And median initial compliance in other studies such as Proceva, 
which um, is a large multi-center study looking at prone positioning, and ARDS was 30. So we felt that our numbers really fit squarely within the consensus definitions of ARDS. Moreover, we showed that these values existed on a spectrum, which has been shown previously with ARDS and did not clearly seem to be grouped into distinct sort of high and low compliance patterns or other phenotypes that we were able to see within our data, as has been suggested previously, as you alluded to. Um, the next part was that we wanted to see how patients responded to established therapy. So as I mentioned before, we focused on prone ventilation as about half of our cohort underwent this intervention. And we found that of the 31 patients who underwent prone ventilation, the initial PDF ratio was 150 and the compliance was 33 prior to prone positioning. And immediately after they were turned into the prone position, PDF increased to 232 and compliance increased to 36. So this gives us a delta of about 82 for improvement in PETA-F with prone positioning, which is a significant improvement in gas exchange. And moreover, the increase in compliance suggested to us that these patients also have recruitable lungs and that prone ventilation is able to help recruit areas that were otherwise not available for gas exchange. I would importantly note that we also looked at median PEEP in these two positions, and it was not substantially different while subtine, where it was 13, and in the prone position where it was 14. And this response to prone ventilation is very consistent with what was seen in the prior Proceva trial that I mentioned. So those were sort of our initial physiologic assessments. And then finally, as we've been discussing, we looked at outcomes as well. So we had a median patient follow-up of 34 days, and all patients had at least 30 days of follow-up. And the most important findings were that 41 patients or 62% were successfully extubated at this time point, and 50 patients or about three-fourths of our cohort left the ICU. Our overall mortality was just under 17%. So how would you interpret these findings, uh, Jahan? Yeah, I think the biggest um, takeaways for myself and for our group are that these patients presenting, presenting with COVID-19 respiratory failure, the majority have ARDS by Berlin criteria. Not only do the majority have ARDS, but they actually fit within the definitions or the, um, the physiologic numbers that have been reported previously for ARDS. So in terms of gas exchange numbers, compliance numbers, and we also looked at measures of dead space, doing an estimated dead space calculation and looking at ventilatory ratio. So there really was nothing unique in terms of respiratory pathophysiology that was separating these patients from prior large cohorts with ARDS. And I would say the, the second takeaway was that the majority of our patients did well in that they were able to be successfully extubated and left the ICU at 30 days. I think this is in contrast to what is being reported in some scientific journals and in the media where there is a lot of concern that the majority of patients who are placed on the ventilator do poorly and die. In fact, we found the exact opposite, that the majority are able to do well and ultimately leave the intensive care unit. Okay, so let's uh, turn our attention to Corey. Um, Corey, you heard about these uh, key findings. Um, so what is your interpretation of them, or were there any findings that you thought you were really uh, impressed with? Yeah, I think overall, I, again, I would echo what Jahan has said. I think these findings should be very reassuring to the critical care community in that uh, they suggest that uh, despite the overwhelming numbers that are associated with the, the, the pandemic of COVID-19, we're dealing with an industry with which we're very familiar in which we have a very, uh, a very large base of high-quality clinical trial evidence. So uh, as Jahan said, our patients were squarely within uh, 
the physiologic parameters and definitions that are described in prior ARDS cohorts, and reassuringly, they spawn, responded very well to evidence-based treatments for ARDS. So I think uh, the overwhelming uh, message of this study should be uh, we know how to deal with this overwhelming problem, and when we deal with it in the ways in which we've been trained to do, based on prior large clinical trials, patients do very, very well. I think the other message that should be very reassuring, as Jahan said, is that our patients really, really do do well. And so uh, for all the concerns uh, about uh, how devastating this uh, outbreak has been on the economy and on med medical systems and, uh, and on individual patients and individual providers, the really good news is when we do what we know how to do, the vast majority of even the sickest patients with COVID-19 get better. So we can do this, we can make our patients better, and we can make sure uh, that our patients have good outcomes. I think that should be very, very fair. So I, I do want to turn our attention to um, the previous report by uh, Gedanoni where he looked at, uh, I think it was 16 patients and relied heavily on anecdotal reports from other physicians uh, around the country. What makes your study um, involving, um, it's still less than 100 patients, um, what about your study would give you reassurance that it's uh, more representative data um, than what was uh, reported uh, by him in uh, a, a similar reports? Well, it's data, for one, uh, and it's not anecdote, and those two things are different. Um, I think it's very, very difficult to tell uh, what the characteristics of the population that uh, were referred to uh, in the letter by Professor Gatnoni because uh, the population is poorly characterized. The letter consists of just two histograms. Uh, the number of observations in those histograms don't match up. Um, so we just don't have a lot of careful phenotyping and characterization of, of, those, uh, of those patients. And I think that it has been known for a long time, as Jahan alluded to, that, uh, that ARDS is a heterogeneous disease. So I think small anecdotal reports are inherently not generalizable. So I think it's important to, in an organized way, carefully uh, categorize the features of all of your patients before you make uh, make statements about what the physiology is like. And so we really tried to just take all of the patients that came into our ICUs within a given time period and then follow them for a prolonged period of time so that we could accurately describe the physiology, pathophysiology, uh, and outcomes. And I think um, uh, anecdote in general uh, is, um, is difficult uh, as a basis for clinical and scientific decision-making. I think in a heterogeneous consistency, condition like critical illness or ARDS, it is um, almost certain to be to be misleading. And so, I mean, I just fall back on the aphorism that, uh, that data is not the plural of anecdote, and it's important to characterize things in a systemic way before drawing conclusions. And I think that was definitely one of the strengths of uh, your paper, the fact that you also carefully uh, phenotyped uh, the patients and you gave 30-day um, outcomes. Um, Jahan, uh, there are no perfect papers. There are no perfect manuscripts. Um, uh, after you finish a, a study, you realize, oh, my gosh, I could have done this a bit better. Um, and you alluded to the fact that this is um, observational data. So maybe you could tell us what you consider as the limitations of your study um, and what you would consider doing in the future to improve on those limitations so that we get closer to the truth. Yeah, I think that's a great question, and I think you've highlighted the first issue with your questions, Dominique, and that this is a small retrospective observational cohort. It is only 66 patients. 
that we, you know, we publish it in the interest of providing timely and relevant data on respiratory pathophysiology in these patients. I think we would all be very interested to see detailed descriptions of larger cohorts of patients with respiratory failure with patient-level data, and I am sure that's forthcoming. Um, second, I think there's a lot to be learned about the biology of SARS-CoV-2, clearly, and I'm hopeful that we will see more rigorously performed studies in the near future. It is well known that ARDS is heterogeneous. It's a syndrome, and it encompasses distinct phenotypes, in particular, a well-described hypo and hyper-inflammatory phenotype has been um, described in the past. And we ourselves did not look for enriched subphenotypes in our cohort, but I think this is an important question going forward. And with larger cohorts of patients with ARDS, I really look forward to more detailed characterization and seeing if we, if patients with COVID-19 respiratory failure are enriched for one of these phenotypes that we know to exist in ARDS, um, and whether they're enriched for sort of other unique characteristics that are related to this particular novel coronavirus. Um, there are a couple other limitations I was thinking about with our study. I think Another uh, important thing to recognize that this is a really early cohort. In fact, it's our very first 66 patients who are managed at both institutions with COVID-19 respiratory failure. So it will be important to account for practice variations over time, although I will say we have continued to manage patients at both institutions with established ARDS therapies without substantial changes. Notably, patients in our study were intubated early, um, most within a day of hospital presentation and about a median of seven days from symptom onset. I think this is perhaps changing as we go forward, and I think myself and others are very interested in the conversation around early versus later initiation of mechanical ventilation in these patients and the effects on progression of lung disease and lung injury. And then finally, as we've already discussed, while we followed all patients for at least 30 days, our outcomes are still preliminary. Many patients remained in the hospital at the time of data censoring, and I would expect that our mortality data may underestimate the true number, which we will continue to reassess. And it's important for everyone who has sort of published cohort data thus far to continually to reassess that number. And I also want to make a comment that we appreciate that some of these established therapies may be difficult to enact in areas that have resource and personnel limitations and a greater surge in patients than what we have seen in Boston and at our hospitals. And I want to fully acknowledge that. Thank you, Jahan. Uh, Corey, any uh, additional limitations uh, that you would identify um, or um, uh, things that we should focus on in the future um, to improve uh, the work that you've done? Yeah, I think there, uh, there are a couple of things that I might just flesh out from the, from the uh, shortcomings in our study that Jahan has, has identified. But first of all, uh, this is an early cohort, and it's uh, an observational cohort at a point in time. And so there certainly are practices that have changed both at our own institutions and I suspect at institutions worldwide. So, for instance, uh, in this very, very early cohort, we had a relatively high percentage of use of experimental therapies, uh, experimental antiviral therapies, including um, uh, some use of remdesivir, uh, use of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, which I think a lot of people have uh, appropriately in my mind moved away from. So there are, there are things that are unique about this point of time that uh, probably limit uh, the generalizability, and I think as as Jahan has outlined in an observational cohort like this, there are very interesting questions that we just can't really get at with observational data. This business of when do you intubate uh, a patient with uh, evolving hypoxemic respiratory failure is one that clinicians have struggled with for a long time uh, in ARDS, and that it's very, very difficult to get at with observational 
observational data like this. So I think that's, that's true. And I also think that there are, uh, you know, it's a small cohort, and so there are interesting questions having to do with biomarkers, as Jahan outlined, that, that we can't get at in this small cohort. Um, I also think that um, there are external factors, getting back to the fact that this study is one small cohort at a point of time, which will influence outcomes. So, for instance, at this point of time, at both of our institutions, which are court-married referral institutions, there had been decisions related to availability of ICU resources that led to a decision not to accept outside hospital transfers, which would normally uh, enrich the severity of a cohort at a coordinary referral center. So there are extraneous factors like that um, that would uh, impact uh, the results seen in a similar observational cohort made at a different point in time, for instance, now when we're accepting more outside hospital transfers and therefore likely have more established and more severe disease. So I'm sure if we were to repeat this cohort now, our, uh, our median PDFs and our median compliances would be, would be different. Gotcha. Well, one thing that has struck me um, in the reports that are coming out is that the regions that are reporting uh, or, or advocating for late intubation tend to report a higher mortality where those that are going for an um, early intubation strategy seem to have a lower mortality. Um, I don't know if you've observed that or if that is the case or uh, what your impression um, has been of uh, that strategy early versus late? I think it's a super important question that we can't answer with this observational data. Um, so as, as Jahan alluded to, so we have a relatively low mortality in this cohort and we pursued an early intubation strategy because that's consistent with our clinical practice. Um, however, do we, is that low mortality due to the fact that we were intubating patients who were less sick because we're pursuing an early intubation strategy, or is that because an, intubation, an early intubation strategy is associated with a lower mortality than the use of non-invasive modalities like high nasal cannula and non-invasive positive pressure ventilation and delayed intubation? That's not something that we can answer with this observational data because we didn't use those other uh, those other therapies. I think it's a very, it's a clinically absolutely absolutely vital question that a lot of clinicians would love to have data on, but I think that our, our data set and our observational cohort is unfortunately just inadequate to address that question. Okay, and then I do want to turn our attention to this question of hypercoagulability and shunting. And um, you actually did have some data on uh, dead space, and maybe you could comment on that, uh, Jahan, and then uh, Corey. Yeah, so um, we were interested in looking at measures of gas exchange, and clearly that does not just involve oxygenation, but involves measures of dead space as well. And we were particularly interested in characterizing this exactly as you said, because there's been a lot of discussion about these patients having increased dead space, perhaps that's being due to a hypercoagulable state, an increased um, microvascular thrombi or even macrovascular thrombi in these patients. So we at least wanted to characterize the dead space in these patients because we hadn't seen too many reports of that on a de detailed patient level um, manner. So we um, estimated dead space fraction and we also use ventilatory ratio, which is a parameter that has been correlated well with calculated dead space in the past. And we found that both of those numbers, so estimated physiologic dead space fraction was 0.45 and ventilatory ratio was 1.25. And while they're not normal, those numbers are certainly in line, again, with prior cohorts of ARDS that have looked at this exact question. So from our perspective, while I do think that perhaps there's some unique biology to SARS-CoV-2, we still don't fully understand 
the hypercoagulable state and whether that indeed is different than other infections. In fact, we've seen pretty equivalent rates of thrombosis and bleeding in a lot of our patients, so it's hard to know what's at play here. I think it's a really important question that we need to understand, at least by our calculations on our 66 patients, their dead space fraction seems to fall in line with prior patients with ARDS. Got you. Uh, Corey? Yeah, I would just add to that that um, that prior cohorts of uh, patients with ARDS have been demonstrated to have coagulation abnormalities, and there is you know, um, exposure of tissue factor and activation of the extrinsic clotting pathway that's associated with ARDS. There's a literature on this that goes back nearly 30 years going back to some pioneering studies performed by Warren Zapol and Reggie Green at our own our own institution. So I think there are really two questions there. One is, uh, is there um, an elevated dead space? And as Johan points out, our ratio was not a normal uh, BDVT, so there does seem to be an elevated dead space. Um, and is that related to clotting? Certainly that's conceivable, although we can't say for sure that that's what's going on in our patients. But the, the second question is, is that different and has been seen in prior cohorts. I think when you're, you're dealing with endothelial disruption and exposure to tissue factor and the things that go on in the array of patients with ARDS and hypoxemic respiratory failure, there is going to be some propensity to at least um, microvascular clotting that's been well described, as I said, in ARDS in the past. And so I think um, uh, we'll want going forward both to better characterize the degree of clotting and coagulation abnormalities that are happening in our patients, and we will also want to to answer the follow-up question, which is, is this uh, something that is unique biology to SARS-CoV-2, or is this something that's similar to what has been seen in the past? And I think I would echo what Jahan said. I don't think we know the answer to that question. Yet. Agree. Um, I want to turn our attention to um, the tracheostomy outcomes. Um, uh, it, it was reassuring that mortality was not as high as expected. And as you said, you reported a mortality of 17%, which is uh, significant, but uh, thankfully lower than uh, uh, has previously been reported. But one in five patients uh, require tracheostomy, um, and I noticed that uh, most of them um, uh, it appears to have had tracheostomies later than uh, 14 days. So, so, so maybe you could comment on that. Uh, it, was that the rate of tracheostomy what you've seen previously in your hospital? Um, do you think it's higher than normal? Um, if we have a patient that we're intubating with, um, uh, uh, with SARS-CoV-2, should we anticipate a tracheostomy rate of 20%? Jehan? Yes, that's a great question. I think, you know, Corey might have some additional information about our prior numbers um, in regards to tracheostomies in patients with ARDS because I don't have that exact data. But we are seeing a, a fair number, as you said, one in five patients who ended up with a tracheostomy. I will say that while we have not done this in a systematic way yet, uh, I know from just following these patients myself clinically, a good number of those patients have been able to be liberated from the ventilator and have even been decannulated. So we are hopeful that a lot of these patients won't end up with long-term tracheostomies. But it is interesting that a good proportion of our patients seem to have a slightly longer time on the ventilator and are requiring tracheostomy. Um, I don't think I have a good answer for that right now, and I would love to hear Corey's thoughts if he has additional input into that. Yeah, Corey? I think uh, that, yeah, so I think that is my, I don't, although I don't have uh, precise data in terms of a pre-COVID comparison, my suspicion is that the tracheostomy rate is higher. I think one of the challenges in this outbreak is to sort out 
what is due to specific disease pathophysiology and specific biology of SARS-CoV-2 and what is due to health system factors. So the, um, there are a number of things that have conspired, I think, to increase our length of mechanical ventilation. As you increase the length of mechanical ventilation, you're going to start to see complications of prolonged ICU stay and prolonged uh, mechanical ventilation, including uh, myopathy and weakness and things that could arguably increase the tracheostomy rate. So there are a couple things. One, uh, intubation and uh, extubation are aerosol-generating procedures, and so there is a lot of concern among clinicians, I think, about uh, or angst, I should say, about trying to decide what an appropriate reintubation rate is. And so the longer you wait uh, or the more certain that you want to be that your, in, in, your extubation is not going to result in a, a, a repeated intubation or a need for reintubation, then, then the longer run you're going to have on mechanical ventilation. I can try to say that a little more articulately, but I think you know, we're waiting longer in these patients because we don't want to risk uh, aerosol-generating reintubations. I think that's happening at a lot of centers, and um, although we're, we're looking at this now and we don't have specific data, I suspect that that's happening at our centers as well. And so um, a desire for a greater degree of certainty prior to extubation is certainly going to increase the length of mechanical ventilation, and that's likely going to increase tracheostomy. Uh, uh, The the fact that there are no early tracheostomies in this group was um, uh, a result, um, I think, of a policy decision, which I think is based on good data that there's not improved outcomes with uh, early versus late tracheostomy, but we were not doing, as a matter of policy, tracheostomies in these patients before 14 days, at least at MGDH. So that also affects that that number. Of healthcare sort of resource and concern for these disease transmission issues that may be affecting this number as well. As Corey said, there certainly is a concern for extubation and reintubation, putting personnel at risk for disease transmission, and along those lines, the use of non-invasive therapies such as, you know, BiPAP, CPAP, and high-flow nasal cannula, which I think a lot of institutions have been using more frequently in patients post-extubation, is also something that we were not routinely using at this time point in our patients for concern for disease transmission, and I think that also certainly affected the comfort of physicians and different healthcare workers taking care of these patients in terms of timing of extubation and risk for reintubation as well. Okay, I think you both bring up really important points and uh, hopefully it'll be fleshed out in uh, future studies. So um, uh, I want to draw towards the end of of this podcast and I want to ask you, uh, Jahan, um, how do your findings advance our clinical practice? Um, It it is a cohort study. It has uh, brought some really important data because one of the strengths of your study is that you uh, meticulously characterized uh, the patients that you saw. How do you think your findings are going to advance uh, our future clinical practice? In critical care? Yeah, that's a great question. And as I've mentioned before, I'm certain that there are unique features to SARS-CoV-2, and I'm optimistic that with a concerted global effort from many of our top scientists and researchers, that we will continue to understand more about this novel coronavirus and its disease manifestations. However, I think our study is important because it shows that the majority of patients with COVID-19 respiratory failure not only meet criteria for quote-unquote typical ARDS, but show similar gas exchange, respiratory system mechanics, and importantly, response to established ARDS therapies such as prone ventilation as prior large studies in patients with ARDS. 
So my hope is that clinicians look at this patient-level data and come to their own informed conclusions. Our takeaway has been to manage these patients with the many decades' worth of evidence-based medicine in our field that has supported improved outcomes in these patients with ARDS. So that would include low tidal volume ventilation, conservative fluid management, and early consideration of prone ventilation. And I think a lot of focus should be on the rigorous implementation of these therapies, in addition to the important quality metrics, such as early mobilization, delirium assessment, and diligence towards recognizing new infections, such as ventilator-associated pneumonias and catheter-associated infections. These are all the mainstays of ARDS therapies, and we believe that our findings provide physiologic justification for the continued use of established ARDS treatments. And we remain concerned by the current discussion, both in scientific journals and the lay press, around abandoning these therapies. We know that early application of supportive treatment for ARDS and treatments that minimize further lung injury are really the only known options that we have to decrease mortality in ARDS thus far. And I think we would reiterate as a group that the level of evidence that is needed to change this approach should really be set at the highest level. I think additionally, I would emphasize, as we've already discussed, that contrary to what is being publicized in the media, the majority of our patients on ventilators did not die. In fact, the majority not only were successfully extubated, but were able to leave the ICU. So clearly this is a devastating disease that has impacted every person in some way. I think our data should provide some hope that patients can get better with evidence-based therapies and quality measures in the ICU. And I would hope that both patients and clinicians will not be adversely influenced by premature data that suggests extraordinarily high adverse outcomes and mortality, when in fact it looks thus far that mortality may not be that substantially different compared to patients with respiratory failure from other causes in the pre-COVID era. I think that's a really good summary, uh, Jahan. Corey, I'm going to give you uh, the last word, and feel free to add anything that we haven't had the opportunity to cover in this podcast that you prepared for. Corey? Uh, well, I would just, I think Jahan has uh, has excellently uh, identified the key points here, and I would just echo what she said. You know, there is uh, a wealth of high-quality clinical evidence for how you treat ARDS and how you improve outcomes in ARDS. And I would just say, you know, historically, after some of these landmark trials like uh, ARMA and the low tidal volume ventilation trial, uh, FACT and conservative fluid management, PROCEVA, um, and consideration of early prone ventilation, there has been, uh, it takes a while for those practices to be adopted uh, into routine use. And I think one of the things that has concerned uh, a lot of clinicians who are taking care of these patients is as we've slowly gotten to the point where those mainstays of ARDS therapy are actually routinely implemented in care, then along came uh, uh, this global health emergency and people started moving away from things that we had sort of painstakingly worked to routinely implementing. So I think the overwhelming message from our data, at least to my mind, is don't abandon those things that we've worked for so many years to get implemented into routine clinical practice. Continue doing that work of implementing evidence-based therapies for, for ARDS, and it will lead to, um, to good outcomes for our patients. I think it's a great way to end the podcast, and thank you both uh, uh, Dr. Aladina and Dr. Hardin for taking the time to share your findings with our audience. Thank you both. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. It's been fun. A big thank you to Drs. Aladina and Hardin 
And a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominique Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.